Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Inside the Sports Car interview series presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. It is race week at Sebring, and I am so happy. So for this episode, we have something that I think you might be interested in to start off, as is our new tradition with Supreme race engineer Jeff Brown, a truly old friend, someone I have known. I worked with Jeff the first time back in 1991. He was a race engineer on an Atlantic team that I worked on. I was one of the dumb mechanics that he put up with, but thankfully he has uh, decided to maintain our friendship all these decades. But it's so awesome that Jeff uh, is making time for us every week to reveal engineering items, technical items. Uh, I did follow in his footsteps to become a race engineer and just love continuing to uh, sit at his uh, feet in a proverbial sense and listen to his insights and also get to talk about some things that I know about too. But really, I just try and be the uh, the person serving up the questions here and listen to Jeff explain cutting-edge items like today's topic, which is data monitoring in the race by the sanctioning body. So if we think of balance of performance, we think of tuning and calibrations and telemetry and all kinds of things done to look at and monitor how each car is performing. In this instance, when the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship also have the World Endurance Championship here this weekend in Sebring. But if we think about those cars competing in their events, in some cases, the mindset might be, oh, well, hey, you go through all of that the series really is the big kind of eye in the sky, snooping and whatnot, looking in on what you're doing, coming into the race. But once the race actually starts, well, then it's a free-for-all. In reality, that is 100% not the case, as Jeff explains. IMSA is still monitoring everything. So he dives into what they're looking for, some of the notes that he's gotten back from the series, saying, hey, uh, beware of this or uh, rectify that quickly gets into lambda settings uh, another area where you might have heard that name mentioned but possibility you might not know what uh, lambda means in the context of racing data monitoring and compliance so we get into that and then we move into our second interview and that's with chris dyson who finished third in one of the trans am races at sebring a little over a week ago we're actually hoping to have chris on for last week's show but travel issues did not make that possible so caught up with chris talking about the trans am season opener i am a just long time lifelong fan of trans am so i'm so happy to see uh, this mini resurgence taking place and chris brings us inside that then we move on to rob bell and our pal graham goodwin my co-host for the week in sports cars Graham turned up for the British GT Media Day and sat down with McLaren factory development driver Rob Bell, spoke about the new McLaren 720S GT3, and then we move into Graham's second and final interview, and that's with Multimatics Scott Maxwell, the super awesome Canadian, to speak about the, uh, the drive and what they have going on with their Mustang GT4 chassis. That being a Multimatic product, of course, uh, that is being used. It's been seen in the British GT Championship. will also be used and available across Europe. So start off with Jeff Brown, move into Chris Dyson, then pick up with Rob Bell and close with Scott Maxwell in the Sebring edition of Inside the Sports Car Paddock, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. This party just keeps on rolling, Jeff Brown. 
It is the, we're going to make you smarter whether you like it or not, or <laughs> fill in things you might not have known about sports car racing. All courtesy of our dear pal, Jeff Brown, from the Core Autosport team. And I, I try not to repeat this too often, but one of the, the great joys uh, of my life is having met you in, I think, 1991, when you were the engineer on the somewhat small but aspirational uh, Toyota Atlantic team that I was working on. And it yeah. was just pretty cool uh, meeting you back then when your kids were not even knee-high yet, but just uh, <laughs> cool to have this uh, very long, long friendship with someone who's been at the head of his professional uh, industry. And while I was a race engineer for many years, uh, always was looking up to a certain uh, Jeff Brown, among others, wanting to be as good as them. So <clears throat> kind of fun later in life here that uh, as an old washed up engineer, we can at least plug in with a really good modern one and get smarter. And today's topic, my friend, kind of the, uh, the interesting and almost... I don't want to say unspoken, but rarely, rarely acknowledged world of in-race BOP management. Uh, and this yeah. came in from a topic uh, that a, a listener sent in to you. Yep. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I know from listening to all your podcasts that you only get to say BOP three times because <laughs> it usually, usually comes up in a, in a negative way, but we're probably going to say it more times in in this discussion, but it's in a it's in a positive way. Love it, hate it. We're not going to debate that, but it, there it is. And as a race engineer, we have to deal with it. And I don't really care what the you know once the weekend starts. I don't care what the BOP is or whether it's fair or not fair. It's just another set of parameters like tires and fuel and track conditions and drivers that I have to deal with and that I have to manage and I try to manage as well as possible. IMSA, on the other hand, uh, well, on the same hand, they have to manage it too. And their goal is to make sure that everything is fair, that the BOP that they set out for the weekend is maintained throughout the weekend, throughout every lap of the weekend, and that nobody circumvents the you know the rules that are set out so it's something that we have to manage we have to look at and there's uh and imsa is doing the same thing and it's really actually a pretty good working relationship between the teams and imsa nobody wants to get penalized imsa doesn't really want to penalize anybody they're not out to you know get you they want to make the racing good and the racing fair and so they have a various ways of managing that through the weekend when the cars aren't running and even when they're running. And so the the BOP that folks, I would say, are, are familiar with, the balance of performance, that's going to come in the form of a pre-race bulletin that says, Hey Jeff, on the Core Autosport Nissan Onroke DPI, we are going to apply this <clears throat> boost table change that with Sebring here this week, we'll just say, for example, uh, we've made a, <clears throat> a change to your boost. We have made a minimum weight change. Uh, we have possibly altered the uh, maximum capacity of your fuel cell, made a couple of tweaks, all designed to make your Nissan uh, DPI compete as equally, at least in terms of lap time or raceability, with the Acura's the Cadillacs and the Mazdas. 
We know that stuff. It's the, okay, but what happens when we get into the race? And we might see that, okay, uh, hopefully not because a team has done anything to try and contravene the rules, but maybe we've seen, ah, okay, boy, this, this car is performing outside the scope of expectations. What kind of tools does race control have to reach out to your team, any other team? I mean, this isn't limited to prototype, but any other team. Uh, and say, hey, uh, these are some of the things we're going to try and tweak on the fly, or at your next pit stop, we want you to plug in and do this, or we see that you aren't meeting this expected parameter. There's a number of things in there that I think folks might not be aware are really being actively monitored during the race in race control. Yeah, that's, um, you know, aside from the obvious things like at the end of the race, they'll weigh our car and and check our weight to make sure it meets that rule and and other things we can we can talk about that kind of the the static or post race or post practice um checks that they do which are kind of interesting but as you point out race control um has a technical team in the in race control and we talked a few episodes back about um telemetry on our cars and being sent back to us in the pits and how it's also sent to to IMSA. So as the cars are circulating around during the race, IMSA is receiving via telemetry from each car a huge data stream. And in that data stream is all the things that they're interested in in BOP. So for a turbocharged car, it's the boost pressure that we're running. Um, it's the RPM. It's the fuel mixture setting and we'll talk about that in a minute but all those parameters are all sent back to IMSA along with the normal things like speed and throttle position and engine RPM and they even tap into our ride height sensors hmm. and oh yeah yeah they have they have full they they have every every sensor on the car that we can see they can see and so they're not going to use a ride height thing during the race, but they're looking at mainly during the race, your boost and your fuel mixture. Each team now, this is new for this year, has to declare a fuel mixture setting. And IMSA looks at that along with the boost. And if, because here's the thing, if we ran too high of boost for 10 laps and then brought it back down, that would be unfair to the competition because we had 10 laps where we were essentially outside the DOP. So IMSA needs to monitor that actively every lap. And if we get too high and and obviously environmental conditions change, fuel load change, things change. So the boost, you can't just set the boost at one level and it just maintains there. Lots of things change. So there's, there's a, they actually use an integral rolling average of the boost and it gets really complicated there's a lot of mass involved but basically if we go over the target boost too many times in in a row we get a a message um, on instant message uh, from race control through the technical department at IMSA saying you have to make this correction within one lap or you get a drive-through penalty or whatever penalty they deem necessary but we're going to get penalized and so then we have to then uh, we get that message my 
uh, engine calibration engineer who sits with me in the scoring stand will get the message and he will recommend that we go down one knob position on boost and just reduce the boost. I call the driver, say go to position two on the boost. He clicks it down. IMSA sees that our boost has gone down. We're now running just under the maximum boost and they're happy. And that has to happen quickly. Otherwise we'll get penalized. Um, the same thing with the fuel mixture. If you're outside your declared fuel mixture, too lean or too rich, we'll get a message like that. Um, and that's an interesting thing too, rich. Jeff, to, we might stop and explain on <clears throat> the declared Lambda setting. And that has somewhat recently been added into the public, or I shouldn't say public, but the, uh, the official BOP tables that are dispatched. Uh, those have been added somewhat recently for uh, for all to see. That's an interesting factor as well because <clears throat> knowing that every team has a declared lambda setting, a fuel mixture target th- uh, that you are expected to comply with, that takes away. Uh, well, it modifies a lot of things. Mm-hmm. How does this declared lambda BOP Number. I mean, I'm looking at Sebring's BOP. Yours is 0.86. Mazda's a 0.85. Cadillac's a 0.9. And Acura's a 0.89. So, Jeff, knowing that we have this declared lambda setting, which is now being observed by the the eye in the sky and race control, you are you and every team are expected to meet and not exceed this declared lambda setting. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you monitor that throughout the race uh, to make sure you're in compliance. Is that a we're actively watching it or, oh, we just got a note from IMSA, now we better take a look and see what's going on kind of thing. And also maybe share some thoughts on how this declared Lambda expectation and BOP has actually fundamentally changed maybe what many fans think uh, or uh, think might still be taking place in the cockpit. Uh, yeah. in regards of fuel saving and how that gets done. Right. So, so first of all, it, 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 you're exactly right. It has changed it quite a bit. And, and just to, to make it simple on what Lambda is, there's a, there's a sensor in the exhaust pipe that basically it's an expensive sensor and every streetcar has one and we have them in the race car. It, it reads the fuel mixture. It reads the, exhaust gas and reads how rich or lean the mixture was and gives a number so if people are really interested they can go see how that number has come up and what that number means but basically it reads how rich or lean the engine's running in the past we had a knob on the steering wheel, people would always hear engine map, or if they're listening to IndyCar, they'll hear, you know, go to map six, go to map two. And when we have the same thing in sports car racing, we have different maps. And they're basically, the map is just a computer um, chart or program of the fuel versus RPM, you know, how much fuel we're going to put in for this RPM and this RPM and this torque level. And so it's a, it's a description, a computer program that tells the fuel injectors and the timing of the engine and all of the parameters that we can change 
what to do with different RPMs and different throttle position settings. And that produces a the exhaust gas, obviously. The lambda sensor reads that exhaust gas and tells us how rich or lean it is. So in the past, we have this knob. You want to save fuel, you're, you're two laps short of making it to the end on your uh, of the race, you can tell the driver to lean the engine out with his map. The lambda reading changes, shows us, hey, we're leaner now. No big deal. We're going to run less power because you're putting less fuel in, so we have less power. But the strategist, race engineer and strategist have decided that it's better to run a little less power and avoid a pit stop than the other way around. Perfect. They've take, IMSA has taken that away from all the teams now, the ability to change the fuel mixture um, with a knob or with the computer control. Teams now have to declare a lambda reading. And there's a range, but we declare one reading. This is what we want to run, okay? Then IMSA says you got to run that within a certain parameter, a certain, you know, tolerance. So now nobody has this ability to change the mixture with a knob in the car. The only way we can save fuel is strictly by driver ability, by lifting off, short shifting, um, you know, being light on the throttle, not uh, using the, the throttle in the brake zones, all the things that make good fuel-saving drivers good fuel-saving drivers. But the key point being, <clears throat> it's no longer a case of clickety-click-click on the steering wheel to right. achieve a certain fuel number. Uh, that is it's not an option. It is now down to the driver. And where I think this is interesting and Maybe you can add this into your your insights as well, Jeff. Just stepping out of of sports cars for a a moment, uh, in IndyCar, Scott Dixon's been known for more than a decade as the uh, the fuel meister. He makes fuel. He's such he's so amazing, and it's down to his driving style that he has developed to do this. This is something where IndyCar has also gone in this direction pretty heavily too, where drivers have had to learn how to do this uh, because they can no longer rely on a uh, fuel mixture knob to do it for them, that becomes a bit of a quick study thing for, I would say, many drivers in sports cars too, knowing that, hey, your average IndyCar race is an hour and 40 minutes long, hour and 50, great. Yeah, we're going to Sebring for 12 hours here in a couple days. All right, you're going to be in the car for a long time, this is a skill you're going to need to master and apply for a long time. I also think it's pretty interesting to see how, even though we've been racing sports cars forever, there's still new things drivers are having to uh, pick up to do their job properly. Right. Well, um, I'll, I'll try not to make this sound like I'm bragging on my kid, but uh, Road America last year, we had an LMP2 car, which has no fuel mixture adjustment, unlike the DPI cars. So we were essentially running to this year's rules where there's one lambda setting and we can't adjust it. It's not allowed in LMP2. The DPI cars we were racing against all had fuel adjustments that they could lean their their car down. Road America became a fuel savings race. It was a fuel race. Who, whoever could make it to the end was going to win. Colin was able to save an amazing amount of fuel with no adjustment in the car, racing against all the other drivers who had an adjustment in the car, 
and may have been more reliant on that because they had that option in the past and hadn't practiced. They're all good. They all can do it, but they may not have practiced their fuel-saving skills from a driving standpoint because they had the luxury of the knob to do it. And here you needed probably to win this race. You needed either an amazing ability to do it or a combination of both. And so, you know, Colin said, said, hey, you drive for four years in NASCAR for Jack Roush, hmm. and if you can't save fuel, you won't last one year. <laughs> I love it. And so he learned a lot of fuel saving from, from driving for Roush and NASCAR, and it paid off there. So now this year, everybody's going to have to do that. And I think you're right. Those The drivers are going to – they're all good at it. They're just going to have to deploy it now where they haven't had the – the need to in the past with the with the ability to uh, to adjust that but IMSA will be looking at that and make sure that that we're not using some trick to lean the engine out um because we have to hit that declared lambda and if we are um not within the tolerance we'll get the same kind of message we would if our boost is too high and we got to fix it right now um and our engine calibration people uh that's what they look at. They stare at a computer screen for the whole race, looking at boost values and Lambda values and making sure that we're in compliance. Hmm. Trying to out strategize <clears throat> the other teams, trying to be crafty in traffic, <clears throat> trying to set uh, the quickest possible pit stops, trying to be as efficient as possible on tires also having to go through driver rotations, pick the certain strengths of certain drivers, whether it's night, day, or otherwise, weave yeah. them out of 40, <clears throat> 50 other cars, and also, <laughs> I don't know, worry is the word, maybe it is, but worry about uh, what's, the princi- what's the principal seeing, you know, uh, someone's right. looking over my shoulder while we're taking this test the whole time, they've got, they see my real-time answers, all the math I'm coming up with to try and, you know, do this trigonometry test, uh, man, I sure hope I don't get popped for uh, getting getting the, uh, taking the test portion wrong, much less the uh, the final grade at the end. Uh, it's yeah. just, yeah, again, this, I and love the fact that this was raised as a topic because it just, I think for the most part, you know, even I forget at times that, oh no, you are being watched every corner, every, you know, you are always being surveilled. And if anything is, is seen as being, you know, out of compliance, yeah, they don't just wait till after the race. Oh, yeah, we're going to, we're going to dock you five seconds or move you back. No. Or, you know, Nope, uh, there are corrective measures to be taken in many instances while the race is going on. So, yeah. Exactly. Even fuel, you know, maybe it's probably another topic for another day, but uh, they monitor our fuel flow rate, how fast the fuel goes into the car, how much fuel goes into the car, and there's very strict restrictions on how fast we can fill our car. And it's, uh, it's not just a restrictor in the fuel hose. They actually time the fuel flow into each car during the race and we'll and you know if you're going to do 40 pit stops at daytona it's not like they'll let you do 38 of them too fast and then you can fix it for the last two and oh you were legal no you're you can get docked um from the very first pit stop if if you're feel fueling your car too fast and and we're not i want to make sure everybody understands that uh, I, all the race engineers 
my friends that I talk to on other teams, it's it's two percent. How can I find a way to to optimize the rule? And it's ninety eight percent. How can I find a way to not just blow it and get caught? Not, caught's not the right word. Be found out of compliance. It's like that four and six rule we talked about. You just you, your fear is oh, I missed something and I didn't meet the rule. You're not trying to cheat the rule. You're not trying to pull something over IMSA's eyes. Uh, they work really good with us, really well together with all the teams, and the teams pretty much work for to try to comply with the rules. But it's so complex now that you can put your best efforts in to comply with the rules. You're not trying to cheat or anything. You're, you're trying to comply, and you still miss it. And, and that's the fear is that, okay, I tried to make the four and six rule. I tried to fill it the right time. I tried to get the right lambda setting. And I really did, and I missed it, and IMSA's on my case because I'm struggling because I've got an air leak in my intake, and now my lambda's off because of my air leak. Do I have to stop and, and fix the air leak, or can I run it this way? And uh, it's just – it's you're just trying to – trying to make it work right and there's so much going on that um you almost don't have time to figure out how how you can cheat a rule you're just trying to comply with the rule that they they have and and i'm not saying there's too many rules it's what it is and it has to be that way to be fair but it's changed the race engineers uh workload and and focus smarter we are thanks to you (laughs) mr brown well I'm hoping that you and your Nissan team have an excellent Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring. Uh, Thank you, sir. Know that you all have fun playing the role of spoiler to the big factories, knowing that you guys are indeed a independent team that yes, uh, that hires Nissan to supply, uh, compared to having the uh, the full might of Nissan behind you as a factory. So. Yeah, for those in search of a a David to play with uh, and uh, hopefully disappoint some of the Goliaths, at least in the <laughs> prototype category in uh, <clears throat> in DPI, uh, we do have our good pals at Colorado Sport and our pal Mr. Brown. So Jeff, as always, thank you, my friend. And um, the fun part about this is we have no idea what the topic will be next week. So we look to you, dear listeners. Uh, you can either reach out to Jeff on social media, usually via Twitter, or myself via Twitter or Facebook, and if you have technical things, engineering related items, whatever it might be on that side of the sport, just let us know, and uh, we are adding to a list that continues to grow of fun things to get into here to open up the Inside the Sports Car Paddock show. Absolutely, it's been uh, I think every question we've hit since the second show has been um, given to us from you know social media so uh, you know we'll talk about what other people like to hear and um, turns out we like talking about it too so I appreciate it Marshall it's always fun Chris Dyson I was very jealous of you last weekend warmth in Florida while our friends at Circuit of the Americas were certainly bundled up trying to stay warm but Florida Genuine flame-breathing Trans Am cars for the season opener there. You in your plaid Mustang. I love that sponsorship, by the way. Um, I figured who better to catch up with than someone who has a 
a shared lifelong passion for Trans Am racing and knowing that you've been competing in the series for a little while now, it's modern version. I wanted to check and see how the uh, the opening weekend went from your standpoint and maybe then to get into some thoughts on where it might be headed, if we might be on the road to uh, its former importance in North America. So let's just start with your weekend and, and what you saw there. Well, Marshall, it's great to talk with you again. Um, and you're right. Uh, I've been a, a fan of Trans Am since I was a kid. Uh, you know, I, I actually, in the in the early 90s, we were looking at it as kind of potentially a, a place where I was going to race um, a, a, really as a young kid. And, and we didn't ultimately pursue that path, but I never lost the interest in, in wanting to, to go and, and sample these cars. And, and I finally got a chance uh, a couple of years ago, David Pinteric, who's a... Uh, was a good friend uh, asked me to come up to Watkins Glen and, and I was blown away and uh, we had a great year last year uh, learned a lot um, and, uh, and and were in contention at a lot of the events and uh, I think Sebring was uh, a good starting point for us um, I think we've got a little bit of a gap to make up to the, the Burton racing guys at this point um, Lawrence Loshak drove a great race and uh, I think that you know if we would had longer runs uh, I think over longer runs, we were good. We just had these untimely yellows, and he was a bit quicker uh, on the restarts and was able to pull some gaps. But uh, Sebring was very good, uh, decent car count, a lot of uh, quality at the top end. Um, nice to see a few uh, returnees uh, to the series that uh, who have been there before, and, and I think that, that bring good entries. And, and uh, of course, there's, you know, you've got guys like Ernie Francis and, and uh, Lawrence Loshak and Tommy Dreesey you know, among others up there. And, and uh, a lot of these guys with a lot of experience and, and we go out and we race these things and they run hard, you know, and, and we run all out and you got to look after these things because they're monster cars. Rafa Matos won round one on Saturday. As you mentioned, Loshak won on Sunday. You were on the podium there. What can you share with folks, Chris, who might be either shocked to learn that Trans Am still exists uh, or B, might have heard that it's been, you know, it's been ticking over. It's been there uh, in recent years, uh, but definitely not what it once was in terms of just bigger national profile. Obviously, uh, our friend Tony Perella, the, uh, the SR SVRA team, I mean, there's a lot of good folks who've invested in this and are trying to make it a big thing again. What for folks who haven't been super tuned in or aware that it's uh, on a road to restoration, what's taking place there? What kind of cars are still being used? I know that I get lost a little bit in some of the class name designations and such, but as a guy who's been in that paddock pretty heavily, what can you tell us about where it's at in 2019? Well, I think it's an exciting it's an exciting series. I mean, the racing is extremely good, you know, top to bottom, and and. Uh, the cars are thunderous. You know, I mean, there's no other way to put it other than that, that the, the, you know, the, the TA1 cars are ground-pounding, just fire-breathing dragons, uh, unapologetic, um, unapologetically fast, brutal, uh, a lot of, not a lot of the niceties that you're going to see in other, in other formula. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, no traction control, actually have to change gears, and, uh, you know, that's the case for the TA2 cars, which are, you know, which Rafa won in last weekend in pretty fine style. There's a pretty good depth of quality of the teams. Uh, the cars are pretty close from a parity perspective. 
Uh, I think that actually, in terms of getting into the series, it's easy to get your hands on available equipment. Uh, you have a choice in TA1 of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, Ford, uh, GM, and Dodge offerings, yes. And, and body styles and, you know, the cars themselves are, uh, you know, I think the bona fides and the, the DNA go back, uh, really, the current generation cars go back over 20, 20 some odd years. You know, and there's been some evolution. I think that's to Trans Am's credit that they've been able to keep a consistent rule package while still updating the body shapes, uh, the body rules. Uh, last year, we were in the series. They allowed some underfloors and some uh, higher efficiency wings, all in the name of making the cars a really, really high performance category of racing in this country for sprint racing. And uh, I think that Trans Am's got a great niche. You mentioned Tony Perella. He's done a phenomenal job as far as fusing the uh, SVRA offerings with Trans Am into what, what he's calling the Speed Fest. And the Speed Fest concept is being exported all around the country. And I'm excited because it means we get to go to great venues. I mean, we've got 11 races on our calendar, and there's not there's not a dud venue on, in the, on the list. Mm. Um, you know, these are prestigious places that, that any road racing fan would, would love to come and, and see these cars run for the first time. If they haven't seen them in a long time, this is exactly what was racing, you know, in what, what some might consider the heyday. Certainly when I was younger, you and I in the nineties, you know, looked at Trans Am and said, wow, that's amazing. I think it's getting back there. And, mm. uh, you know, we talk about that now that, you know, the, the top five in the series, you know, the, to be up there battling it's it's uh you know you gotta you gotta roll your sleeves up and uh it, it, it's been fun for me because you know i've been out of road racing for a couple of years and and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed coming back and, and having an opportunity to drive these cars in an era really marshall when when you know cars are really being emasculated i mean racing every week is being emasculated and what i enjoy the most about trans am is that it's pushing back and uh it's it's embracing the heritage and the 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 past and and uh you know not putting on any pretenses and 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 from a from a racer standpoint and just from performance standpoint it's it's exciting yeah it's visceral um it, the cars are, are visually fast uh, they accelerate like like nobody's business and uh you know the the braking distances are long enough that you can set somebody up and make a good pass there's no abs so as a driver there's a lot to do and uh that's i think a central appeal for me one thing that I find interesting, Chris, and I'm curious if you and I share a, a similar belief. <clears throat> so when I think about modern sports car racing, endurance racing, even sprint racing, you're going to find your homologated production-based GT3 cars, right? That's a big global imprint for all manner of GT3-style cars. Those cars have every possible driver aid, so that's great for them. We have GT Le Mans slash GTE, which is same production-based, uh, actually taking away some of those driver aids, but a very unique format there. Then we have prototypes, uh, carbon fiber-built chassis, and, you know, really, I guess you could say, uh, almost from scratch, just make it up and, and conform to something that has no attachment to the road whatsoever. That's really been what's emerged, what has survived in the world of sports car racing. The thing that I have found interesting, and I don't know where you fall on this, is 
Trans Am lives in a space that was once normal, but is now extremely rare in the fact that we're talking about tube frame chassis. Uh, so silhouette cars, GT, extreme stretched fantasy looking supercars, GT type cars, but they are not production based. They are made from tubes and you name it, cut and welded in, in specialist racing shops. They've got uh, composite bodies and such. They're extremely light, big cartoonish engines, uh, big cartoonish tires and so on. The, the silhouette racing thing that you and I grew up with, uh, we would find in IMSA, GTO, GTU, truly, yeah, it looks like the car a little bit on the outside, but trust me, <laughs> this wasn't a body in white. This has never seen the inside of a production plant. Almost seems like time has either forgotten silhouette racing or said, no, that's not the way. I've even read a number of folks who think silhouette racing, you know, these tube frame Trans Am type cars... They're not real sports cars. Where do you fall on that? Uh, Marshall, you know, it's, it's, it's a great topic. I mean, I don't know if it's, if it's, it's something that really could require a lot of discussion. I, I think that you're right. I mean, you and I are of a generation that, that, that got to see the transition from, I, I think, in a lot of the, the, olden, the olden era where, you know, cars had more grip. The cars had more power than grip. And a big part of the driver's sort of responsibility was harnessing, harnessing the beast, taming the beast. And for whatever reason, for the last, you know, 25 odd years, you know, the idea of, of harnessing performance and taking horsepower away has been kind of celebrated as a means of reducing, you know, uh, speeds. But what's happened in that meantime is downforce has gone up. Uh, tires have gotten in incredibly good. And, and, you know, I mean, I got to experience a lot of it in, in IMSA and, and in ALMS racing, in my career racing prototypes. Um, the horsepower went down, but the tire performance went up, and so did the downforce. So you end up having cars that are just phenomenal in cornering, and I think this passes down to the GT categories that we see today. Um, I think the proposition of driving changes, though, uh, and I think that the way you manage a car during a race changes considerably, and James Weaver and I used to have these conversations a lot about sort of GTP versus latter-day LMP, just how different the the uh, the driving approach had to be. And uh, it's not to say it's it's better, but it's just different. I mean, I think for me at this point in my career, I I'm I'm just thrilled to be able to experience again, once again, the uh, the the idea of an unbridled machine underneath me. And and I think that I'm also fortunate right now that I'm able to do some circle track racing where I'm driving sprint cars and, and, and having to, having to harness the car and, and, you know, uh, sort of manage the performance with your foot and, uh, you know, without the, the, the computers there to save you. I, to me, I found it pretty liberating. And to your point, I, I think it's like music, you know, music has been become very overproduced. Uh, you know, sometimes it's nice just to plug the amp in and just hammer it and, uh, go, you know, strip, strip out all the producers and producers and the niceties and, and uh, and celebrate what's raw about racing and what's emotional about it. And I, th I don't think there's there's very many cars right now that do that like quite like a TA1 car does. Let's close on this, Chris, because it is so unique. It's such a Dyson thing. So throughout your career, you have raced uh, Atlantic cars. 
you have been, as you mentioned, all manner of prototypes, obviously a champion in prototypes. You've raced uh, in Grand Am, American Le Mans series. You've been to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. You've done World Challenge. You've done all kinds of things. Someone who's still young, like yourself, and very accomplished, might think, some might think, well, we'll just keep doing more of those things. That's been the familiar pattern. Off you go, retire when you're 50 or whatever, and and who knows, maybe there's a a third generation of Dyson who will be driving. I love the fact that you've said, you know what, I have done all those things, and those things were fun. And guess what? I'm going to the dirt. (laughs) I'm uh, going to climb in sprint cars and midgets and just chuck things sideways and see how I can learn, but also find out, test myself against the world's greatest short track drivers in these brutal, completely analog cars. And instead of just doing that, and I guess I'm fawning a little bit here, but I do love it. Instead of doing that, saying, all right, that was fun. Now let me get back to the same GT3-based World Challenge thing or LMP2, whatever. He said, no, let me continue the, the Dyson Tour and climb into more or less the last true, unfiltered, nasty, try-and-kill-you-if-it-could type road racing machine, that being a TA1 tube frame, 800 horsepower, oh my goodness, no driver uh, aids whatsoever type road racing machine. What was it about these decisions, Chris? Because you've chosen the two most non-linear things for one's racing career or enjoyment, but they both tick the same box, just one on pavement, one on dirt. Well, I, you know, Marsha, it, 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 it's actually kind of funny. I, I, I don't think it's by, by design or, or calculation, um, but I think it's more just the fact that I, I, I think it's about pushing boundaries. I think racing has to perpetually be fresh, um, and at least for me it does, and uh, it has to feel like you're, um, you're pushing yourself and that you're, you're being pushed to achieve. And, and I'm not saying that any of the other categories I've done in my career have, haven't done that. I mean, far from it just circumstances change you know programs uh that we we'd had a lot of time in you know ran their course and uh you know in in in, i guess my search for the next frontier um you know i had been doing some oval racing um during our world challenge program and i was becoming progressively more and more um enmeshed in it and enjoying it very much and uh I, i think i've just expanded that now to enjoy uh, you know, champ car racing, and, and I'm very excited this year because we're going to be doing uh, not only just the dirt 100 mile races, but we're also be doing some pavement races. We'll be at Memphis in a couple of weeks, and uh, and, and it's come out to be a great program because between that and running the Trans Am, I feel like I'm in two of the most historic series that have, have ever raced, and, and it, it's something that I think you know when I looked at kind of my checklist of series that I wanted to do. Um, were two things that were always on the list and to be able to be doing them at the same time and like you said while I guess I'm still relatively young although I think uh, some people might debate that it's it's a real privilege for me right now and uh, I consider myself very lucky to, to have been able to uh, to do this and uh, you know there was a time a couple years ago where I'd been racing for 15 years straight and I wasn't sure if uh, if I if I could keep doing it and and I, I was grateful for some of the time I had off. And I'm really, really grateful now to have come back and and uh, get get the team back up front 
and uh, be pushing myself each and every day to, to, to succeed as a racing driver. Well, I can tell you that for those who are uh, who've yet to watch a modern Trans Am race, I believe they air on at least domestically here in the U.S. CBS Sports Network, but you can also find clips and whatnot on the good old interwebs. Just suggest to folks if you've heard Daytona Prototype Internationals with their you know, with a Cadillac V8 or LMP2s with their higher revving. Gibson V8s or pick a GT car with a V8 you need to hear <laughs> the Mustang that Chris drives or pick some of the other the other models in TA1 that is a sound coming from a V8 that you really will not hear anywhere else in road racing it is beauty it is uh, the specter of of death. It is all kinds of things wrapped into uh, eight cylinders, just pumping out a, a, a tone, a tune. Uh, it's it's just glory. There are some some series, as folks probably know on my little podcast here, where I really love to bring you the sounds of those series. Maybe some in car because they just at least they make me smile. So I assume they'll make some other folks smile. Trans Am is really one of those series where you can just you can close your eyes and almost be as happy as what you know opening your eyes and watching because the sounds are just glorious. So happy for you, my man. Happy that you started off the season with a uh, quality podium in round two there in Sebring. But even more hoping that we keep having really great reasons to speak about Trans Am as it as we hope and believe it's going to come back. So we ha- would have IMSA. World Challenge and Trans Am as, as three pillars, which we had for so many years, but three pillars of sports car racing in the U.S. that really serve everyone's needs. Yeah, no, for sure, Marshall, and I'm excited. We'll be at Atlanta in three weeks, and, uh, you know, the tour is going to be making some pretty regular stops. You can uh, you can follow us. Uh, I'm on uh, Chris Dyson 16 on Twitter, and uh, we post regular updates, and we're going to be sharing lots of media. Uh, Christopher Dyson on Instagram. And we'll just be trying to share as much of that great media goodness and uh, trying to bring this into more lives, Marshall, because I think Trans Am is good for everyone. Amen to that. And uh, who knows, maybe our next uh, next call for Inside the Sports Car Paddock, maybe we'll just tell some old Dyson uh, GTP Day stories, or you and I can just wax on about the things we love about the sport with no particular uh, agenda in mind. So, my friend, thank you as always for finding some time, and I look forward to seeing you very, very soon. It's always a pleasure, Marsh. Thanks. At Donington Park for the British GT Championship Media Day, a frigid day in the Midlands of England. Um, cars outside you can hear is the British Formula 3 Championship going round and round and round. But here in the relative quiet, the media centre, with Rob Bell, the, uh, the older, he would like to think more attractive, the Bell brothers. And Rob, I can see buy your overalls either you've been signed for Ferrari or you're with Balf Racing in the magnificent McLaren 720S GT3 yeah well it's no surprise it's the latter (laughs) Um, which uh, yeah it's fantastic it's fantastic to be back actually Um, we obviously I've been with Balf in and around Balf for a few years now and it's a great environment to be in and last year um didn't go quite to script and uh, we the programme was cut short and 
probably for the right reasons uh, but we're back we're back with a shiny new toy um, all full of beans all excited and ready to go talk at a moment and I think that's the main reason to talk to you about the new car because you know probably more about that new car than any other person alive at the moment we've got a full season entry list in the UK 38 cars um, it's 15 and I think it's eventually going to be 16 mm. GT3 cars that's going to be some racing isn't it particularly because you've got that two class system and traffic comes into it yeah absolutely and it's a double edged sword obviously traffic etc big grids and uh, it will cause problems during the year but ultimately that's what it's all about that's what GT racing is all about you know um, you're looking ahead you look behind you, you, you've got to be aware and it is a fantastic grid actually um, and to have such strength again probably stronger than last year I would have thought in terms of you know depth um, and personnel doing it and we've got quite a few new cars new yes. e- either Evo kits or actual brand new cars um, so I would I would say it's actually probably certainly the most exciting British GT I've been in, a part yeah. of by a country mile and, and I can't remember sort of more interesting one for a good number of years Final question on that part of it a couple of uh, good old chats down in the pit lane with the GT3 teams in particular talking about the new Bentley being here for the first time We've got the new Aston Martin here for the first time, as well as the McLaren. But in particular, those two cars I mentioned, their predecessors, very much power cars, quick in a straight line, weren't aero cars in the same way that the McLaren 650S was mm-hmm. and the 720 mm-hmm. most certainly is. But that's going to mean it's altogether closer again, isn't it? You're not here talking about things that can greyhound away on the straight. They're yeah. going to make their pace in the same way that McLaren does in the corners. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Time will tell with that one because <laughs> what gets announced pre-season isn't necessarily what we see on track always. So I think um, people talked about the Bentley being a power car, but actually I remember following it Bathurst last year or the year before um, and thinking, wow, that's got some aero. Um, so actually, it's uh, let's wait and see with that one. Um, but ultimately again you've got lots of different brands in there so you know you are going to have some tracks that suit others better and you've got to wait for your day but I think I think you're right I think you'll go certainly now where you're going to go to most tracks and you've all got a similar um, a similar sort of way of achieving the lap time which will mean potentially more door to door action a bit more elbows out um, you know we've got some tight tracks here we've got you know Alton Park first which is always a Harem scaring weekend, you know, you, you check, you've got all your body parts after that um, when you get home, which is which is a real challenge. You know, it's great, but I think you're right. I think you're going to see really, really close racing, really close racing. Let's talk about the new McLaren because that's why you're here. Factory drive for McLaren again. Um, you've been tasked with much of the development work on that car. We've seen it race just once at the goal mm-hmm. of 12 hours. So far, that was impressive. It led, it led well until, what's it, hour 9 or 10? It was late on the race. Yeah, um, I wasn't there. Uh, my wife was due to give birth on, the de- on that day. It's very inconsiderate. Yeah, yeah, terrible planning. Um, and actually... Alice actually came 15 days late on New Year's Eve, so I could have done the race, couldn't I? But anyway, I'm not saying that too loud. I'm not saying that too loud. We'll edit that later. Um, 
so I wasn't actually there, but but I, I more or less watched the whole race, and the way it unfolded was was a bit of a fairy story, really, in terms yeah. of the projects being done in such a um, compact way uh, that, and not only the project but the whole uh, building of of a division of McLaren. Uh, it's all come together quickly, and and to see it actually perform as it did was really cool, really yeah. cool. Um, and like, as you say, it didn't quite end end up as we as we would have wanted it. But I think there was a really daft thing that went wrong on the car. Nothing to worry about, sort of a thing where you know fifty pence washer or whatever it was. I can't remember, but uh, but ultimately. Um, it was great to watch. It yeah. really was. Well, you know, we were mixing it with the big boys straight away, and I thought that was fantastic. Sort of sat at home watching. In one respect, thinking, "Oh, that's fantastic," and in another, thinking, "Oh, I wish I was in it." Um, but yeah, it was brilliant. We've not seen much of you internationally because you've been involved in the development of the new car. Tell us a little bit about just what's been involved from. Well, it coming off a cat screen, really, to the point where yeah. you've had something that you can take around and give initial feedback for. Yeah. The development inevitably comes with that. Tell us a little bit about how much of your time has been dedicated to that project. Yeah, quite a lot. Uh, so last year, obviously, 2018, uh, the beginning of the year was quite slow because I didn't have a race programme. Obviously, we didn't have anything to race. Um, and I suppose the bottom line is... you. We have got a strong road car to start from. Mm-hmm. You know, it does stem from road car DNA. Uh, the, the the tubs are the same. So ultimately, you've got everything where you want it. You know, engine in the right place, in my opinion. Um, and you know, so you start from from the framework, and then obviously you've got targets to meet, uh, BOP, um, you know, various standards and bits and bobs, new safety rules, um, and actually, it's it's that sort of thing that when you're involved in the whole programme from the beginning, from, from the frame up, you then see how much work goes into it. And it's not all about what ratio we're going to have here, what this... It's about, actually, the roll cage and the new the new seat uh, regulations. And, you know, well, OK, that's fine. Now we need movable pedals. All oh, right, we've not done that before. So it's a little... Really. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the small things like that. And, and being involved in the beginning, it was sort of the first two months or so it's like right go to the factory sit in a frame on, on a you know a makeshift seat tell us where you want this switch yep. <laughs> you know which um, which ultimately is not what we all want to be doing we just want to be at racetracks but actually it's a really important process so so to answer your question we did all of that initially and then it ramped up really quickly we went we went testing and testing was pretty pretty intense did a lot of K's in, in two test cars um, and and you you know you soon you soon learn what's important what's not you've got then where do you aim for your sort of BOP window that's a really important decision and um, and it started to build a picture early doors of well do you know what I think we've got quite a solid base here and um, and then obviously you know you go home at the weekend you're not racing so that's one thing but but to be a part of that is actually pretty special. Yeah. Um, not just me in this program, or, or we've got Joe and Ben as well, who, who did were in the program as well. But any DT at Aston, you know, any driver who's done that, and then that car goes and races and um, has success, and has success is pretty cool. And you know, I was involved in 
the 650 project on the 12C, which was a, a, a different sort of kettle of fish um, in a different environment. But I have brought that knowledge forward as well. So, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a really privileged place to be. And uh, the fact that I wasn't racing was sort of fine because I knew what was coming. Yeah, I get that completely. Yeah, that's been cool. It's difficult in an era of BOP with with GT3, obviously, to sometimes get that kind of yardstick. We, 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 it tends to be spoken about in kind of slightly flowery terms, but you're right. You've been through each of the three iterations of GT3 mm. McLaren uh, through two very different organisations. It was clear that the 650S was a big step from the 12C, and you know, lest we forget, was the most sex- successful. A GT3 car in a single year with uh, championship yeah, wins and big race wins. Yeah. Tell me, how big a you? Oh, you got the Blompone watch? He has, he's got the Blompone watch. I thought he was trying to tell me his time was up, but no, he just showed yeah, me the championship winning watch. Um, how big a step this time? And where? I think what what you do is you learn from from everything you do whether you know successes mistakes everything and, and you just go forward don't you ultimately and, and the road car iterations have got more refined and better and, and I think the realisation in my head is as you you know you, you look at it and as you get a bit older it's it's you you have to understand what your product is out there to do yeah is it out there to win every race it ever goes in well of course but that kind of goes with that goes without saying that's what you want to do but but in reality what your product's out there to do is to please the customers who buy it and they've got to get in it and enjoy driving it and they've got to get in it and it keeps going round and round and round without any problems and then you've got to have the support because there will be a few problems so when there are an issue when there is an issue then you've got to have that side of things and you know you just you just learn to see a bigger picture as you get a bit older and you know, let's use the phrase more experienced yeah, yeah the older it depresses me a bit <laughs> yes um, so as I've got more experienced good man um, yeah you just see the bigger picture and I think that that goes with the whole project and yeah. you know if you look at the 12C I still say it was a, co- a good car for, for for the consideration that it was McLaren's first road car you know mass production or if you want to call it that um production car and, and we made a race car of it and then you know it was, it was a great car the 650 was a step forward and the the 720 will will be the same because we are very much know what we're aiming for we very much know the end goal and um and we're very very keen to to make sure we've ticked off more boxes and keep keep you know customers happy and um and ultimately win races but but you know we, we think we've made a step forward just on on quite a few a few aspects of it and and going forward the, the McLaren sort of GT McLaren motorsport um, sort of GT cars that we're going to build in the future it, it's bright you know it, it's it's just constantly evolving constantly going forward and um, with a change of sort of structure and the way it's all panned out the, the future has got stability and um, a real base and you know something to be to be proud to be a part of and more to come in your era we, we know that already 
Um, I'm not going to ask you to confirm it because that's not appropriate, but I'll say for the tape that it's pretty clear that McLaren are involved in development of another new GT car for another class of racing. We'll, we'll wait and let uh, the guys at Woking decide when they're going to announce that. It must be a buzz to be in the position you're now in. I mean, it's a, it's a hard road as a professional race driver and a harder road still to get to the point where you're a factory driver but now that's a different step again here you're not just a factory driver you're the factory development driver as well as a race driver yeah yeah I suppose the first thing I think of when you say that is yeah and you've got to cling on to it because it's great and there's a million people all knocking on the door but um, it's like I said before it's a privilege to be a part of it all and um, you know as you've alluded to we have got plans for the future and you know I want to be a part of it because it, it's been great so far and something I do enjoy I mean at the end of the day racing is it's in your blood isn't it you, you know you you don't have to be driving the car you know you're here I'm here we're, we're all it's just in the blood and, and it's fantastic and we want to go racing but I think again as you get more experienced um, you just see that that it's great and it's good to have different strength of your bow and the, the de- development side of things is really really good I really enjoy it and um, and yeah so, so to be part of it it's great and it's just it's just a privilege to be to be here doing it freezing coal here at Donington Park um, and a man that knows all about cold weather it's great to see you at Donington Park Scott Maxwell uh, Scott you're here with a new uh, programme for the British GT Championship for 2019 with Multimatic Motorsports yep. and a pair of Ford Mustang GT4s plus a customer car. Yep. We're not used to seeing the big banger US-based cars here. Tell us a little bit about what the programme is all about. Well, the, I mean, the end goal is obviously to sell more of these GT4s and, and the Mustang in general to the European and British market. Um, I think the GT4 pr- program for sure is overdue over here. I think we probably should have uh, tried hitting it a couple of years ago, but you know, better late than never. So we're here with a two-car program, and as you said, uh, we have a customer car as well. So, um, And we're here for the, the full series, not just a one-off appearance, which also helps. And I think they're just going to try to build a presence here in, in Great Britain and in Europe over the course of the year and hopefully this time next year we'll have a bunch of customers you're here today with one of the we'll call it a factory car yeah. it doesn't quite work like that but uh, with young Seb Prio yeah. alongside you uh, a name with Multimatic history with yeah. his dad yeah, yeah, yeah. tell us a little bit about how Seb's coming along well you know, honestly I just met him this morning I've heard incredible rave reviews about him and so far he hasn't disappointed he's uh i mean he's 17 so um i joked with him this morning uh i've raced here once at donington in 1998 and he wasn't even born so um and and i know andy a little and uh talked to andy at length this morning so all good the kid's a a great driver everyone's going oh what are you going to teach him i I, i'm sort of looking at it the other way around because i'm going to tracks i've really never been to or been to a long time ago um so i you know i can help him a bit with with the, the car but he's a fast learner obviously and he's going to help me with the tracks and i think uh, and we're the same size which is awesome as long as he <laughs> as long as he stops growing stops eating so um it's pretty rare for me to have a teammate my size so that it's so far so good and i and he's very quick so i'm hoping he's going to do the heavy lifting and i can just take some of his glory take the credit yeah that's, that's right that's what that's i plan to do yeah Tell us a little bit about the car. Um, you've 
been around this car from its inception and for that matter the previous iteration of Mustang in GT4 tell us a little bit about how the GT4 products evolved tell us about this this car now and also how you see it against some of the competition you've seen today yeah. here because it's a competition depth in the UK this year yeah yeah. I mean I think that's part of the reason Multimatic decided on this series specifically because everyone said it's the toughest of all the European series which probably makes it one of the toughest if not the toughest in the world I think Imps is very strong as well um so yeah, I've been around most of the Multimatic uh, Mustang projects for the last 20 years or so, but the, the last two or three, um, you know, in, in different classes, Grand Sport or whatever, but the GT4 is the latest one. Uh, I guess this is really year three, and um, right from the get-go, I mean, we had a good solid base and a ton of experience with the car, so with GT4, you can be a little more uh, uh, aggressive with aero and, and whatnot, and, we, uh, right from the start, we tried to develop a car. You have to think the end goal and, and the customer more than, you know, what Scott Maxwell wants or Billy Johnson wants. You know, it might be a little different than what uh, a gentleman racer wants or or even a, a team is after to attract customers. So um, I think we've done a pretty good job. Uh, most people that drive find it very easy to drive, very forgiving. And obviously, um, it's very competitive because it's winning, you know, won a bunch of races last year in customer hands. And that's ultimately what we want to see. Ford and Ford Performance and Multimatic want to see customers win way more than we want to see even our own cars. Even though it's hard as a, a driver in one of those cars to say that. that we all know that's the end goal. So, um, it's evolved a, a little over the last couple of years, but not, you know, with the BOP, you come out and you, you present a car and... You got you got to be careful what you're presenting because you know if it, they check all the boxes and that lock it in that's the car. Yeah. So you know they they do a great job the SRO and FIA and all those people of now making sure that it's hard to fall outside of that window. You might initially like we've seen a few times where a car comes out in the first race dominates, but you don't you don't see it last for very long. So um, we've built a car that I think you know like I say a, a varying. D- degree of driver skill can make go quite quickly and and more importantly can drive you know 30 40 50 laps at a consistent pace and be competitive and a lot of times that's what you want to do i mean one or two flying laps is great but when you get a pro-am combination it's really hard for an amateur to to do that and he's not expected to do that so he wants a car that he can just pound out the laps and have a good time and not be overdriving and, and when things go a little wrong he can catch it so i think we've delivered a car like that and now we just gotta you know get it over here a little more presentable in terms of support and all that and i think ford will do that and multimatic will do that it's about raising awareness and okay i guess compared to just about any other mustang product you've been involved with in that 20 years yeah, yeah. what you've got now is an advantage that this is now a global car yeah. we are seeing these cars yeah. on the roads yeah. of the uk we yeah. you know we it was a very unusual side to yeah. the previous iteration yeah. of yeah. mustang what are you hearing in terms of the level of recognition for people you're talking to about the program? I'm sure there are potential customers coming along. Yeah. We've, you know, and I've heard this for over a year now, and I think that's what we're addressing with this this program right here is the first example of that. I think there's been a lot of interest for a while, um, but, you know, when you're, when you're a, a guy shopping around for cars, there's a lot of great competitor, manufacturer competitors. You've got Porsche and Audi and, and BMW, all, all these different companies that are pumping out very good cars as well the difference being in europe they have they're deep on their support and we haven't had that traditionally over here so i think people have been eager to go the mustang route but there's no one to back it up initially you know in terms of race support and parts and all that 
Ford are taking that leap now, and I think that'll attract the customers. We, you know, there's stuff going on down in Australia and Europe now. North America obviously is established. I think that's really the only difference from a year ago or two years ago is now Ford are backing it up, so that people will now go, okay, if I take a corner off my car or I, you know, have a, a technical problem, there's somebody there at track to help me out and that's that's I think the, the difference and that's a great thing to have that customer car sharing a garage here but it won't be I'm sure for the rest of the season that you'll be able to prove it not just on track but in the support that they're seeing in the tracks as well yeah and I think you know for a customer sometimes um, and it happens even in Imps or Pirelli sometimes when the, the image is a factory team comes in, oh, I don't have the same equipment. And fortunately, we've proven, especially in North America, we have some really strong teams running our product, that it is the same car. You are getting the same car, and if something goes wrong, they're right there. You want, you know, Multimatic's not going to run a factory program over here for years and years. They want, they'd much rather see six, eight privateers running their cars. And, and I think that will happen. But yep. something has to kickstart it, and this is the kickstart. Now all you're going to do is go out and win. Well, hopefully, hopefully, or, or our customer wins and we're right behind them. But, you know, it's going to, it's going to be difficult. I'm uh, No illusions, we're here to, we're going to dominate. I think um, it's a very, as we've talked about already, a very competitive field. I think we can be one of those guys that can win races, and uh, we'll just have to see. It's a, it's a lottery out there with these well, series. Wish you success, and I wish you some slightly less Canadian weather. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Okay. And that was inside the sports car paddock, this being March 11th. And yeah, boy, can't wait to get out of Sebring Week and see who we happen to ring up or sit down with and capture for the next episode. I don't know, sneaking suspicion. Might be Sebring related. Might be WEC, might be IMSA, who knows, but uh, might even be World Challenge, which is just at St. Petersburg. So anyways, that's the fun part for me with this new show. We don't exactly know who we're going to speak with and bring to you with this interview feature format, but it's kind of fun. And we also get thoughts from y'all as for who we should dial up and bring to you. So looking forward to that next week. And also, if you get a chance, check out MarshallPruittPodcast.com. It's brand new. It's alive. I think we have most of the bugs ironed out, but if not, please drop me a note. Let me know. You see a typo somewhere or some dumb thing I might have come up with let me know we'll get that fixed but yeah brand new site marshallpruittpodcast.com everything we've ever posted we're almost at 500 episodes now uh yeah wow check it out hopefully and if you're not a subscriber we have a big old red button that says subscribe and you can figure out whatever ways that make sense to you either streaming this downloading it and yeah join the little family here and looking forward to getting to that 500th episode and motoring on to who knows a thousand so we're coming up on our three-year anniversary here in may and i don't even know what we're going to do it's another thing give me an idea i mean this is very much your podcast and very much driven by what you all happen to like or think and uh yeah here we go almost at 500 well all right i'm marshall pruitt this is the marshall pruitt podcast presented to you by cooper tires and the justice brothers thank you for listening